my motto on science is science with eyes wide open. And it's really important that you don't let uh, pre-assumptions drive your science. Uh, my science humbles me because I don't know everything and I continue to learn every day. I love it. Hey there, it's Kristen, your host. This week, we've got an episode highly requested by listeners. What's the first thing you think of when you dream of Yellowstone? Thanks to a lot of media stories and History Channel documentaries, it may well be the so-called Yellowstone supervolcano. Yellowstone's magma-inclined underbelly definitely gets a lot of news coverage and doomsday drama. That said, the geology and volcanology of the greater Yellowstone ecosystem is so much more varied and, dare I say, interesting than an apocalyptic supervolcano. Geysers shoot plumes of boiling water several feet into the air, sometimes with remarkable punctuality. Mud pools gurgle and bubble as gas breaks free from the earth. Hot springs are hued with every color of the rainbow as steam calmly evaporates from their surfaces. If you've been to Yellowstone National Park, you know why those boardwalks are so busy with people observing these marvels of nature. It's truly magical. In today's episode, we have the wonderful opportunity to chat with Dr. Lisa Morgan, geologist, volcanologist, and all-around incredible science communicator. Lisa has been studying Yellowstone National Park for decades and has worked on many incredible projects, including the most detailed mapping of the bottom of Yellowstone Lake. Her passion is infectious, and we promise you'll learn a lot. During our conversation, we cover why the Yellowstone area contains such a large number of hydrothermal features, exactly how close that infamous magma chamber is beneath our feet, and yes, we'll briefly touch on if the supervolcano is going to erupt anytime soon. We wrap up by asking Lisa some questions submitted by listeners like you. All right, let's jump into Yellowstone Rocks with Dr. Lisa Morgan. My name is Lisa Morgan, and I'm a scientist emeritus with the U.S. Geological Survey, and specifically, I work with Yellowstone Volcano Observatory. Wonderful. And what is the Yellowstone Volcano Observatory? So the Yellowstone Observatory is a consortium of nine state and federal agencies that provide timely and long-term monitoring and hazard assessment of volcanic and earthquake activity in Yellowstone National Park. And it's a virtual observatory. I take it that when you say it's a virtual observatory, you mean there's not some big building on some mountainside with a glass window and everybody crowds around and stares into a volcano, but rather you are collaborating on research. Um, is that fair to say? <laughs> exactly. So well, let's bring it back out a little bit because I want to get to know you more. How did you get into geology? Did you like rocks and volcanoes as a kid or was there any particular defining moment where you identified that as a career path? Oh, you know, I think it's like anybody's, it's it's uh, convoluted. You know, as a child, my dad loved hiking. And so starting about five, he started taking me and my siblings uh, backpacking to Rocky Mountain National Park. Uh, we did a lot of camping as children. 
I climbed my first volcano. It was an extinct volcano uh, when I was six, and that was really cool. I was always looking at rocks and uh, minerals and wondering where they were, and my dad would try to answer that question. Uh, always liked looking at the landscape and definitely always liked being outside. When I went to college, I uh, entered as an art major oh. and I painted. And um, I noted at one point that there was a class called Mineralogy and Optical Crystallography. Hmm. And in there, it described that we will learn about the color theory and light. And I thought, oh, these would be things that could help me in my painting. But I had to take prerequisites of physical and historical geology. And then I took this mineralogy and optical crystallography, and I was completely hooked. And wow. it was really clear I just wanted to do geology, although I still paint. <laughs> oh, wonderful. It's so interesting, Lisa, as you were describing yourself as a child, I was like, oh, clearly you were going to be a scientist because you were a very curious child who was observing the world around you. But then that absolutely makes sense as an artist as well. So how interesting to see that that tie of science and the arts where you're curious about the world and want to observe it and interact with it and how that can certainly feed into both of those strengths. Yeah, I think it's common. I think mm -hmm. it's common, you know, yeah. so it's the left and right side to the brain, right? Certainly. What is what is your preferred medium in the art world? Oh, paint, uh, you know, and, and definitely oil paints. Oh, yeah. wonderful. They feel so good to put on and I love color. Yes. So, and texture. Oh, well, plenty of color and texture and oils. How wonderful. Oh my goodness. I love that. So then specifically, I'm curious to know uh, why the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, perhaps this is not an obvious question because we have so much volcanic activity here, but what drew you to this location and its particular geological activity? I spoke about taking this course, optical mineral, uh, mineralogy and optical crystallography or optical mineral, whatever, mineralogy and crystallography. And crystal lattices were really interesting. And it took me to x-ray diffraction and uh, fluorescence. And there you can actually see the ionic radii of different elements and how they change in size. And so I became very good or confident in doing x-ray diffraction and fluorescence. And um, I got a job as in when I graduated from college at the USGS uh, doing um, diffractometry and fluorescence. And in this, I eventually was hired as a geologic field assistant to go work in at Craters of the Moon in Idaho. Aha. And that was amazing. And um, I worked with a guy who was getting his PhD at the time, and he pointed out all of these volcanic features. And Craters of the Moon is probably one of our youngest, if not our youngest, volcanic field on, in the conterminous United States. It's uh, 2,000 year old, years old to about 15,000 years old. Oh. So it was fascinating. And I spent 10 weeks out in the field, six weeks with him, and then uh, two weeks 
with uh, somebody who worked on tectonics and Paleozoic rocks and used this thing called facies analyses, which tells you how close or far away you are uh, with respect to the depositional environment of a particular rock type. And then I worked with a guy who uh, was doing volcanic stratigraphy mm -hmm. out on the Snake River Plain. Uh, fast forward one more year. So that was 1978. 1979, I was asked to log the deepest well uh, on borehole on the snake eastern Snake River Plain, which was about 3,100 meters or 10,361 feet. Wow. And uh, was told, oh, you're going to go through these volcanic rocks and then all of these sedimentary rocks and you'll probably end up in Precambrian rocks. Well, that didn't happen. Hmm. And it was just full of surprises. And we ended up only being in volcanic rocks the whole way. And uh, my colleague and I, we decided based on the data that we had drilled inside of a caldera oh. and that this was one of Actually, I think it was it was the first recognition that there were collapsed calderas that were now buried on the Snake River Plain. And so then I went on to do my master's thesis and I looked at the lithology in that borehole and correlated that with volcanic rocks that were just to the north of that borehole exposed on the northern side of the Snake River Plain, and I did a whole bunch of volcanic uh, rock mapping stratigraphy and established a stratigraphic column. And I found that so cool, I went on to do my PhD and um, took it all the way from American Falls, Idaho, all the way up to Yellowstone and the Tetons and uh, established kind of the concept of volcanic fields, which are nested calderas within each other. Then I went on to work with my longtime colleague, Ken Pierce, who asked me, well, what do you think of the Snake River Plain being a part of a hotspot track? And I said, well, uh, it's possible. And it's the last chapter in my PhD dissertation, but there's some problems. So he said, well, you want to work on it? And so mm. we did. That's wonderful. Okay. So it sounds to me like you really honed in on volcanoes because you bored into the Snake River Plain expecting to find one thing and accidentally just drilled down into a caldera. Yeah. And we're like, you know what? I gotta, I gotta, I have questions about this. I gotta yeah. focus here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, much of science is um, having surprises mm -hmm. and not knowing and then really trying to figure out the puzzle and allowing the puzzle to take you to places you did not ever anticipate going. So I never anticipated a lot of this. And it's like dominoes, right? right. Everything kind of falls. Yeah, it's like the world is one big scavenger hunt for your curiosity. Yeah. I love that. So we've we've said the word caldera a few times already. And I want to be mindful that maybe some folks who are listening are uh, frantically Googling that on their phones right now. But do you want to just tell us, explain to us what a caldera is? Well, a caldera is basically a large collapsed volcanic structure. 
and it doesn't necessarily have a certain composition or anything. It comes from the Spanish word cauldron, like mm. a big soup pot. So, um, and when we use it in uh, Yellowstone and in the Eastern Snake River Plain, we're referring to these very large volcanic structures that have collapsed and in um, forming those calderas, huge amounts, thousands of cubic kilometers of material have erupted, very explosive rocks. And most of those are what we call rhyolite, mm -hmm. which are very high silica, like 77, 74, 77% silica. So they're very, they tend to be very explosive and they form, we think, very quickly. Okay. Okay. Wow. How exciting. <laughs> so it seems like, you know, much of geology, when we're talking and thinking about geology, uh, the processes are so slow and um, happen not on a human timescale. But then you, have, you are in the area of geology where things can happen uh, perhaps a little bit more quickly and explosively. <laughs> yeah. 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 Very exciting. Which is pretty mind-blowing. You Truly. Know? I mean, one day, uh, if you survived it, one day you're there and it's kind <laughs> of a flat or maybe domal structure. And the next day it's like maybe a kilometer, two kilometers deep into a big hole, you know? Yeah. Hard to imagine. Anyway, there it's a lot more there. And usually there's multiple vents in these calderas. Mm -hmm. So um, in the Yellowstone caldera is about 85 kilometers by 45 kilometers. And it consists of at least two smaller, but very large uh, collapsed volcanic vents, which okay. can also be called calderas. Okay. So clearly there's a lot going on in Yellowstone. Uh, I have read that half the world's hydrothermal features are found in Yellowstone. How did Yellowstone become such a hot spot? Pun absolutely intended uh, for volcanoes and thermal features, etc. Well, it is a hot spot, as we've already kind of discussed. And um, it's the most recent kind of volcanic field that have has formed over at least the last 17 million years, over 750 kilometers and so what drives this hot spot many of us think is you have a deep thermal plume which you could call a thermal anomaly in other words it's a hotter area than the surrounding rocks that it finds itself in we think it's deep and others have confirmed that in other words it's as deep as the core mantle boundary so it goes down about 2,900 kilometers beneath Yellowstone. It's actually deflected a little bit to um, the uh, northwest. And this thermal plume has been constant. Well, it's changed some over at least the last 17 million years. But you have, it's like a candle Mm -hmm. And the North American plate, which is just made up of the, a thin crust of the earth, like an apple skin, mm -hmm. it, it has moved over this 
thermal plume or thermal anomaly and cut a hole or cut a track in the crust, developing all of these clusters of collapsed calderas. And the system kind of goes on and then off and on and off. And we think at least the caldera volcanic field forming part of this and that has to do with something called eruptable magma which we can talk about later Hmm. but um, at some point there isn't enough melt in the rhyolite or the silicic magma chamber to cause a large eruption okay so this thermal anomaly right now is underneath yellowstone and in rising it has uh, from the mantle core boundary at 2900 kilometers depth it gets to a point where it can no longer rise because it is in what we call isostatic equilibrium with the surrounding rock which means that the thermal plume has the same density as the rock that it, or the mantle in the the upper mantle. So it can't rise, there's no reason for it to rise. They're the same density. Mm -hmm. At that point, it starts, it's still hot and it starts melting the lower crust. And the lower crust material starts melting and forms a lot of intrusions or dikes. Mm -hmm. And those dikes, they um, basically accumulate at another point of isostatic equilibrium, and they form a what we call a basaltic magma chamber. Okay. And that basaltic magma chamber gets to about 16 kilometers below Yellowstone, and then it's at the same density as its enclosing rocks. So it can't rise anymore. So it's stuck and it starts melting the upper crustal material. And then the upper crustal material starts melting and forms a silicic magma chamber, which eventually erupts these big rhyolitic explosive rocks. So in summary, (laughs) you have basically this thermal plume and then on top of it is a magmatic system that contains two kind of discrete magma chambers. Okay. A basaltic magma chamber that goes up to about 16 kilometers and um, a silicic magma chamber that is from about 12 kilometers to maybe five kilometers, four kilometers depth. So when you're Yellowstone and in the Yellowstone caldera, some of the shallowest areas are in above kind of Yellowstone Lake, where the magma chamber, the silicic magma chamber, is somewhere between three to five, four to five kilometers below you, which is very cool. That is very cool. It is so wild to think about uh, where we stand and what is underneath us. So as you're talking, I'm trying to visualize this and I'm imagining the thermal plume to be like a hot butter knife and the crust to be the stick of butter that's just kind of getting drug along it. And at some point, like there's little pockets of melted butter forming. I, I really understand the world through 
uh, butter references. So I'm hoping that that it's is. Okay. I love to cook. <laughs> Perfect. So it sounds also like magma begets magma because you're describing exactly. the thermal plume and then it's melting what's above it, which is in turn melting what's above it, which is eventually going to break through the crust. Right. Fascinating. Okay. So you outlined the sequence, how this happens with uh, the thermal plume and magma begetting magna, magma, and then the sequence of uh, eruptions that follows. Uh, so where are we in the Yellowstone process? Where is the Yellowstone caldera along this route of eruption? Okay. So when my colleague Ken Pierce and I first wrote our paper, we mapped out, and part of this was in my dissertation, we mapped out, I noticed that there were these caldera uh, clusters and that it wasn't a continuous chain of calderas, but it was a cluster of nested calderas. And then there'd be a hiatus. And then not too far, maybe 50 kilometers or so, there'd be another cluster of nested calderas. And so I entitled those volcanic fields. Mm. And so Yellowstone caldera is the third caldera forming eruption in what we refer to as the Yellowstone Plateau volcanic field, as defined by another colleague, Bob Christensen. That has that volcanic field has three large cycles of caldera forming eruptions. One which started about 2.1 or 2.08 million years with a huge eruption, probably one of the largest in the world. Uh, then at about 1.3 million years old, there was another much smaller eruption. So that first one put out about 2,500 cubic kilometers of pyroclastic flow material. And the uh, 1.3 million year old one put out about 500 cubic kilometers of pyroclastic flow material. And that one is nested very okay. nicely within the first one. And then the Yellowstone caldera went a little bit to the northeast, but overlapped the first caldera. And it erupted about 0.631 million years ago. So about 631,000 years ago. So is there going to be another big caldera forming eruption? And that's, you know, a lot of people's $64 million question. Mm -hmm. And we don't know. Mm -hmm. We don't know. Number one, it will take a certain amount, actually large amounts of eruptible magma, magma that is uh, molten and um, most of it, either uh, without crystals or with a, maybe a very small amount of crystals in it, so very hot temperatures, and requires enough pressure and gases for that to erupt. Right now, it's estimated that may, and, and in these, these silicic magma systems, it needs maybe 50% eruptable magma mm -hmm. in order for that to happen. Okay. Uh, for the Yellowstone magma chamber, it's estimated maybe 5% mm -hmm. 
maybe 15%. So I'm sorry to disappoint people, <laughs> but we don't see that happening anytime soon. And it probably wouldn't be the same magma chamber. Oh, that is um, happening um, right now underneath, that is uh, beneath the Yellowstone caldera. Okay. These, um, the big caldera forming pyroclastic flows are generally all high silica rhyolites. They all have distinct chemicals and isotopic signatures. So that tells us that each magma system or each batch is a little bit different. Okay. Also, we are assuming that the North American plate, and we're actually, we're not assuming, we know that the North American plate moves about two and a half, maybe 2.7 centimeters per year to the Southwest. Mm -hmm. So that's like the rate of growth of your fingernails, right? right. To the northeast, and we would assume that if we're going to have another eruption, if it's not in Yellowstone, it would be to the northeast of Yellowstone. And the crust there gets much thicker than where, where it is now. So we're not sure exactly what's going to happen. And it may be with respect to another big caldera forming eruption in Yellowstone Plateau Volcanic Field, we would need to have rock material, upper crustal material, that uh, is easily melted. And it could be that that easily melted upper crustal material is now depleted. So it could be there isn't anything to melt. And that may be the reason why when you go to the track of the Yellowstone hotspot, why these volcanic fields turn on, turn off, turn mm -hmm. on, turn off. They're waiting for the North America, the plume is waiting for the North American plate to get new crust over it right. so it can start melting uh, lower refractory mi temperature minerals. Okay. In the crust. Yeah, so multiple things have to line up in order to create the conditions for the big one, as right. I understand it in Yellowstone. That's so interesting. And so the, the magma chamber that's under the park right now may be drug along as the plate moves and uh, another, or will be, of course, but, but another magma chamber would even have to form and presumably it's not going to happen in a couple months or anything. Exactly. You know, one of the reasons that people choose to visit Yellowstone, of course, is because of all these thermal features. So can you tell us a little bit about the relationship between the magma chamber or and or thermal plume and features like geysers and hot springs in Yellowstone? You know, and and the top of the magma chamber, it could be as deep as five kilometers. I mean, mm -hmm. there, it's three to five. That's a safe safe bet. But that basically conducts heat upwards into the very upper upper crust, and it heats groundwater. If you remember, I talked about rhyolitic lava flows now filling the Yellowstone caldera, and that these rhyolitic lava flows are very high in silica. Mm -hmm. So they're 74 to 77% SiO2. And so we have groundwater that is from uh, rainfall and snow that's recharged into 
the system on an annual basis. And so this groundwater is heated by the conductive heat flow coming up from the magma chamber. And at some point, that heat flow is transferred to becomes convective heat. And so you start getting hydrothermal circulation cells where hot water rises and then it gets to the surface, it cools, and then it descends. So you have all of these circulation cells. Uh, and so it's convective. And so that's how you originally get these hydrothermal features. In order to get hydrothermal activity and geysers and things like that in Yellowstone, you have to have high heat flow. Mm -hmm. And Yellowstone has some of the highest, if not the highest, heat flow in Western North America. You have to have large amounts of uh, water. So we have, uh, because the Yellowstone Plateau is anywhere between a half kilometer and a kilometer above the eastern Snake River Plain, it's like this very high, kind of isolated plateau. And so there's very high rates of precipitation. Storms from the Pacific Northwest are channeled down or up the big topographic trough that you see now on the Snake River Plain, which is about 90 kilometers uh, wide. And this storm system goes from very low, so maybe 4,500 feet elevation to 5,500 feet elevation to maybe, to now you get up to Yellowstone and you're at 8,000, 1,100 feet elevation, and it goes from dropping rain like in Pocatello of maybe 25 inches a year to Yellowstone, which is maybe 60 to 75 inches a year. So you have a lot more rain. And then the third component you need is active seismicity. So there's tons of earthquakes there. In fact, it's one of the highest uh, seismically active areas in the United States and active deformation of the Yellowstone caldera, which is inflating and deflating all of the time. You need the seismicity and the active deformation in order to keep the fractures open mm -hmm. so that you have the circulating groundwater that circulating groundwater is picking up silica from the rhyolitic lava flows, right? And then at high temperatures, it, it's very capable of picking up lots of silica in its wa in water. But when it gets to the surface, the temperature goes down and the silica precipitates out. So you get this material that we call sinter or geyserite. Um, you get, um, you know, all kinds of thermal features such as hot springs, geysers, fumaroles, um, mud pots, explosion craters. And um, it's important to recognize we have three types of chemical uh, chemistries of hot springs in the park. So we have um, very uh, vapor-dominated, very acidic 
rocks or uh, fluids that basically dissolve the rock and um, cause uh, rock to go into mud. So you get mud pots Mm -hmm. and you get fumaroles and you get vapor driven acidic type systems. And then you get what we call um, chloride neutral or um, alkaline type chemical systems. And those uh, pick up the silica in the groundwater and they create the hot springs and the geysers and the explosion craters. And then out, and those are within the Yellowstone caldera. And then to the north of the Yellowstone caldera, you have an active fracture or tectonic zone that we call the Norris Mammoth Tectonic Corridor. And up at Mammoth, everybody knows about Mammoth Hot Springs, which is driven by calcium carbonate hot springs. And like the silica-rich ones, those waters are rich in calcium carbonate because the waters that um, are uh, circulating in the rocks underneath, the the rocks that are uh, contain the groundwater are carbonates. Okay. Is that why we have all those unique features there? Because that calcium carbonate is then getting deposited in those interesting ways? Okay, wild. This is so amazing because I feel like my basic understanding is, well, it's like putting a kettle on the stove. You have heat coming up from below and you've got some water on top. And so eventually it's going to whistle and explode. But you are describing a very complex interaction between heat from the ground and a specific uh storm system that or not storm system but i should say um just yeah they are of climate but yeah storms that come and put you know more water on the landscape in this specific high region and then you have to have it all shaken together so you have all these fractures that is so dynamic and interesting and so complex and then the resulting diversity of features is completely fascinating. So I'm so grateful to you for explaining that. And one more thing. Mm -hmm. In the caldera, you really need those rhyolitic lava flows. Yes. So those rhyolitic lava flows are fundamental in controlling where your hydrothermal features are. Okay. Okay. So they usually, if you look at a geologic map of Yellowstone, and actually I wrote a paper on this in 2005, but if you look carefully at the mapped hydrothermal features in the Yellowstone caldera, they're all, or for the most part, not all, the majority of them are on the edges of these lava flows because these lava flows have a very low permeability. They also come up along fractures that are associated with deformation of the Yellowstone caldera. Okay. So someone like you could look at mapped hydrothermal features and have a good understanding of the volcanic forces happening beneath and the composition beneath. Yep. Fascinating. Oh my goodness. What a world. (laughs) It's very fun. Awesome. Okay. So let's um, shift focus a tiny bit. Uh, one of the one of the many areas uh, of that you focused on over the years has been Yellowstone Lake. 
And I'm wondering if that might come as a somewhat of a surprise to people, since though the lake is certainly a prominent feature in Yellowstone, I don't know that most folks think of it as one of the big geothermal wonders. So could you tell us a little bit more about why you started studying Yellowstone Lake and what makes it so particularly interesting? Well, actually, um, my colleague, Pat Shanks, he's a, a water geochemist, and he was working with a group from... Um, University of Wisconsin, and Pat had worked in uh, on the ocean floor on hydrothermal vents. So he started working with these guys from Wisconsin, and they were looking for their vent sites on the lake floor by looking for bubbles on the surface of the lake. And as a geologist, that's really backwards. And <laughs> We we like maps, <laughs> and so we proposed, well, why don't we make a map of the northern part of Yellowstone Lake? And so we did, and I'm a geologist, so I combined uh, the bathymetric mapping, of which is a type of sonar mapping of the uh, lake floor with seismic reflection profiles, which is another kind of sonar mapping, with a magnetic uh, map that we had collected uh, in the late 1990s and um, combined these different techniques and was able to start mapping the floor of Yellowstone Lake and was able to have a much better idea of where exactly these hydrothermal vents were and why they were there. And it was, it was amazing. And then we complemented this with going to the floor of Yellowstone Lake using a submersible remotely operated vehicle with my colleague, Dave Lavabo. And so that was just, it blew, blew my socks off. You know, it was very cool. I can only imagine. Uh, any surprises down there? Oh, <laughs> so many, so many. We found, and and the lake had been mapped before, but never at this resolution. And I always equated it to having cataracts and then having my cataracts removed. Aha. This new uh, map. And um, we, we were able to to identify these huge cracks in the lake floor, these giant vents in the lake floor, uh, giant hydrothermal explosion craters, which nobody had ever even imagined were out there, um, these large siliceous spires, which were um, coming from what were depressions on the lake floor, this close kind of... Um, symbiosis between the um, lake fluids and microbiology. And so we started getting all of these, um, this is not my field either, but uh, filamentous bacteria. Mm -hmm. And then silica was um, depositing on these bacterial maps. And then you started getting the aquatic life in Yellowstone coming in. So there were shrimp, there were um, different types of fish, and, uh, and there were sponges. I never thought there were sponges in lake. Wow. And then the piscivorous or the fish-eating 
uh, lake trout comes in and eats the Yellowstone the cutthroat uh -huh. uh, to the tune. They were eating them to the tune of 60 cutthroat for every one um, uh, lake trout each Ooh. year. So it was decimating yeah. the uh, population of cutthroat. And the lake trout never venture out of the lake. But the cutthroat do, and there's like 141 tributaries that flow into the lake, and there's all of these species, some of them endangered and threatened, that rely on the lake trout. I mean, not lake trout, the cutthroat trout for their survival. So you have bald eagles, you have um, grizzly bears, you have black bears, you have river otters. Um, oh, what are those? Beautiful. I never can say the P. Anyway, um, very famous bird. Um, osprey. <laughs> you know, they all depend on the cutthroat trout. Yeah. But um, we've been working with the Park Service, especially uh, a fisheries person, Dr. Pat Bigelow. And uh, she has developed with the uh, Yellowstone, and she has developed a... Uh, gill netting program so that over the last 20 years uh, maybe they started with a few hundred to a few thousand lake trout a year the lake trout are much larger than the um, cutthroat trout but now they're taking out maybe half a million lake trout a year oh and finally we're being we're able to see the streams and the cutthroat trout coming back so all of these things are interconnected and they're linked. It's not just geology, but it's, you know, biology and management, resource management of the park. Oh, that's incredible. It, it certainly sounds like Yellowstone Lake is the beating heart of Yellowstone. It is. <laughs> it absolutely is. And yeah. it's located in the center of the greater yes. Yellowstone geoecosystem. So it is the heart. The yes. beating heart of Yellowstone, yeah. Yeah, wow. Every, everything is connected in space yeah. and time. Yeah, they, it is. It Incredible. is. Um, your passion and enthusiasm for your work is so apparent, and it's making me very excited. Uh, what do you love about your job? Oh, everything. You know, um, I love being outside. You could put me outside and... I would be very happy, but, and before you know it, I'd start looking around. So um, I, I love being able to be outside, to look at the landscape, to look at rocks and try and figure out why that landscape's there and why those rocks are there. And I get to work in a volcanic terrain. I get to apply principles of geology physical volcanology, geophysics to this terrain. Um, I have always used a variety. I've always said I use a variety of tools in my black bag. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I assume nothing. And I, my motto on science is science with eyes wide open. Mm -hmm. And it's really important that you don't let uh, pre-assumptions drive your science. Uh, my science humbles me because I don't know everything and I continue to learn every day. 
I love it. And then I go from the field to the laboratory, which is almost as fun. And I get to look under microscopes and uh, look at chemical analyses and look at, you know, seismic reflection profiles and look at all of these different things, uh, uh, data that's been collected. And then I get to assemble all of this data try to analyze it and interpret it and put it into a cohesive manuscript. And it's really when you write up that manuscript that you really start fully understanding and learning what you've done and also reading other people's research. So yeah. it's just so much fun. It's yeah. so much fun. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. Science with eyes wide open. That is a, yeah. a very beautiful sentiment. Um, so you clearly are someone, uh, I would imagine, aspiring geologists and young scientists of all stripes could look up to. Do you yourself have a science hero? Oh, that's kind of two, two answers. One, um, I have to look up to my father because if he hadn't taken me hiking and hadn't said, honey, you can't put those rocks in your pocket. We're in a national park, but we can look at them and we'll go outside and we can collect um, rocks outside of them and hadn't been so patient and answered my questions. Um, I wouldn't have gotten that real interest. And he also took me to the art gallery almost every Sunday. Um, in science, I have to say my heroes are, well, there are many, 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 but I have had the great fortune of being able to work with people like Ken Pierce, um, J. David Love, Betty Skip. Uh, these are all geologists at the U.S. Geological Survey. I've also gotten to work with a lot of incredible geologists in, um, in the universities and in private fields. And um, then I'd also um, say another hero is Harlan Credit, who is a scientist and a park interpreter in Yellowstone uh, for the last 50 years. And if you think I'm enthusiastic, you should talk with Harlan. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe we'll have to take you up on that. <laughs> that's, that's wonderful. It sounds like you have a, a very strong community, which is so great. Yeah. And that's so important. Mm -hmm. Certainly. Certainly. Um, is there anything you're looking forward to studying or are there any big questions you would really like to see answered? Oh, yeah. Um, and I'm retired. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a lot of things. I, I'm still looking at triggers for these really large hydrothermal explosions. And I, I've just submitted, and it's been through review, uh, a paper uh, on large hydrothermal explosions in Yellowstone and what the triggers are. And like geysers, no two are alike. Uh, you know, what triggers these hydrothermal explosions, especially the large ones, um, that really intrigues me. Another thing that is really interesting to me are the large lake systems that are not only in Yellowstone, but also completely through the eastern Snake River Plain. And what does that tell you about the paleo environment, the paleo climate, 
and um, what our future is going to be like and how resilient um, um, we've been through the millions of years. I'm still interested in um, how volcanoes work and um, very interested in these rhyolitic lava flows and the various environments in which they were emplaced in. Uh, some were emplaced under ice, some were emplaced in pools of water, lakes, and some were emplaced on dry ground. And I guess the last thing that I've really gotten myself into now is looking at uh, the last two glaciations, the Bull Lake and the Pinedale Glaciation, and looking at the features and timing of um, associated events at the ends and before uh, those glaciations. So I still have a lot on my um, checklist, and I haven't even named all of them, but, um, you know, there's still a lot to learn. Big world, lots of questions to ask. Yeah. <laughs> Never stop asking questions, that's for sure. All right. Dr. Lisa Morgan, we are going to move on to listener questions because lots of folks had, um, let's just say, big curiosity about this topic and about your work. And so we certainly have some great listener questions for you today. So starting off, Rich from Indiana wants to know what part of Yellowstone has the most interesting geological formations? <laughs> You want me to answer that? Yeah, you're in the hot seat now. You have to pick some favorites, it sounds like. Well, that's like asking me which one, which is my favorite color or which is my favorite child. Um, I guess I would encourage him to let his curiosity be the driver and make sure he looks at things. Perfect. Um, Tower has a lot of really cool features. Uh, lost Creek is very cool, uh, where you see a wall of glass, which is ponded pyroclastic flow from the Yellowstone caldera. Um, there's there's a lot of cool things. And I've written a bunch of uh, published field trip guides. So if he wants to write me, I would be happy to send him PDFs of these field trips field trip guides, and he can decide what he wants to see. Oh, that is so wonderful. Um, if there's a link to those too, we'd be happy to throw that in the show notes, um, but we'll connect with you. We'll connect okay. with you on that and see if that's possible. That is such a, a wonderful resource. So Rich from Indiana, it sounds like you are instructed to go follow your curiosity and keep your eyes open and uh, let us know what you find. <laughs> Jeff from California asks, what does the recent information that Norris Basin has risen mean for the humans and animal inhabitants of the GYE? Nothing except, <laughs> except that it's part of the total cycle of Yellowstone deformation. And we know for thousands of years, because that's about as far back as we can track in terms of deformation, that the Yellowstone caldera uh, inflates and deflates. We call it heavy breathing. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times when it, Norris inflates, 
the area over at Sour Creek Dome, just north of Yellowstone Lake, deflates. Oh. And when the Sour Creek Dome system inflates, Norris deflates. So that's been tracked pretty carefully for, well, maybe, maybe I'd say the last hundred years, but we're able to take it back thousands of years with um, mapping late, former lake terrace, lake shore terraces of Yellowstone Lake. So anyway, that would be my, my answer for him. The landscape is breathing. Yeah, it Wonderful. is. It's <laughs> okay. a living, breathing caldera. A living, breathing caldera. Ooh, love that. All right, Kristen, uh, not me, but Kristen, age 10 from Indiana, asks, what do you usually find in the rocks in Yellowstone? Oh, well, since I usually look at the volcanic rocks, I find minerals, different kinds of little crystals inside the volcanic rocks, and they're in a matrix of glass or ash. And that's when I'm looking at the volcanic rocks. But I also look at hydrothermal rocks. Uh, when I look at those, a lot of times I find um, these rocks are composed of, a, um, we call it amorphous silica. So that means it doesn't have a structure and it's just the precipitate from the groundwater. But a lot of times I find grasses that were growing and now are little holes, or I find sticks, or I find, um, you know, little fossils. And in fact, in the volcanic rocks, I found big logs that were there before you know, on the landscape that were then incorporated into the volcanic pyroclastic flow. Wow. All kinds of treasures, large and small, in the rocks. Well, great. Rocks are very cool to look at. Very cool to look at. Sounds like Kristen agrees. Okay, Brian from Alaska wonders, why is the timing of Old Faithful so consistent? Well... Old Faithful, number one, geysers are rare, just to start with. And they only occur globally in maybe six or seven areas. In Yellowstone, Old Faithful is kind of isolated from the other geysers over at Geyser Hill in the upper geyser basin. And we know from previous people's work, uh, Sue Kiefer, uh, Rick Hutchinson, who used to work there, um, and more recent workers, that uh, Old Faithful has a very is very deep, and also has a large pocket reservoir off to the side, so it's kind of isolated hydraulically from the other geyser activity. So it's able to kind of fill or refill and discharge on its own kind of time sequence. And so, um, 
you know, and the walls of the of the uh, vent um, is are somewhat irregular, and so but narrow. So, and there's um, a time in which that large reservoir, um, the water gets recharged. It's affected by the conductive and convective heat. The water in the reservoir starts filling up. It starts boiling. And then at some point when it, it fills up, you know, there's steam in there and the whole system gets driven and a lot of um, water is erupted and then it starts over again. So um, I guess I would say it's deep, it's isolated hydraulically from the others, and it has a very large reservoir system in which to store its water. So fascinating. Wow, thank you so much for that answer. It's certainly something I have always wondered about, and I'm sure many folks have. And there's good papers on it too. Yeah, good, good, good. Brian from Alaska also wants to know, do new geothermals ever open up in the park? Absolutely. So, so we have uh, these things that we called migrating hydrothermal cells. And they're basically convective cells of hydrothermal fluids that move laterally on the landscape. And you can see these, a good place to see them is like in Lower Geyser Basin, where you see these fields of what look like dead trees, and they have white, I call them bobby socks, but they have white, white bases at the bottom of the trees. And that's basically those trees, the, what happened there is that this migrating hydrothermal uh, cell moved into the area and may have become somewhat stationary. There were a lot of trees in that forest. Those trees do what they normally do. They absorb the groundwater. That groundwater is hot and it's rich in um, silica. So when it's hot, remember, Silicon can go into solution very easily, but once it gets drawn up into the trees, then it cools, so it precipitates out. And so the uh, Cambrian layer, it gets clogged of the tree. It gets clogged. All those little vesicles in the trees, they get clogged. They can't take water in anymore, and so those trees die. And what's left are the bobby socks trees that you see in these um, these vessel in these uh, forests. Another new place that a colleague Greg Vaughn just discovered is uh, and has documented maybe about ten years that just recently has formed is in the Upper Pelican Valley um, by I want to call it uh, by Turn Lake. And so he's been able to document that thermal field growing and um, with infrared imagery, as well as uh, noting these uh, pods or uh, 
clumps of trees that have been dying. And then, you know, you have open, open areas that are thermals. So, yeah, I mean, again, Yellowstone is an active place. It's breathing. Hydrothermal cells are, high, are moving all over the place. It's not a dead place by any means. <laughs> That's incredible. So if somebody is in the Yellowstone area and observes dead trees that have a white, you know, sort of base to them, that is an indication that a hydrothermal cell moved under that forest at one point. And yeah. Then, yeah. Oh, and it probably is still under there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it is not safe probably to walk around there because, you know, eventually all those trees will go. I mean, they'll fall down. It takes them a while. Okay, folks, you heard that. Don't go walking through the uh, the forest of white trees. Yeah. All right, Dr. Lisa Morgan, thank you so much for being here with us today. This was such a beautiful journey. I learned just an incredible amount, and um, I am so appreciative of you spending time with us. Well, I'm appreciative that you're interested in our work. Science is fun, and it's just the facts, ma'am. Absolutely. Yeah, we can all get behind that. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And uh, we'll talk with you soon. Okay. Thank you so much. So I am feeling a lot better about the super volcano and I hope you are too. Definitely don't let it deter you from visiting this remarkable place and learning all about its geology. Here at the Greater Yellowstone Coalition, we are committed to sharing the diverse stories and science of the Greater Yellowstone ecosystem and we are thrilled so many of you are curious about this unique landscape. Keep the podcast topic requests coming, and we'll make sure to consider all we can. A huge thank you to Dr. Lisa Morgan for joining us on the podcast and blowing our minds, yes, pun intended, with all things geysers, calderas, magma, and more. Lisa, we love your passion. Thank you so much for sharing your work with us. We're also sending our gratitude to you, our listeners, for all the incredible support since we released our first episode in July. We have learned a lot in 2021 and are still learning, but your enthusiasm for the greater Yellowstone ecosystem drives us to continue sharing its stories. If you'd like to consider a year-end gift, you can help the podcast by donating to our organization, the Greater Yellowstone Coalition. GYC is dedicated to working with all people to protect the lands, waters, and wildlife of the Greater Yellowstone ecosystem. It's through gifts like yours that we're able to continue this work. Thank you, have a wonderful winter, and we'll see you next time.